Um, Christmas has crept up on us a bit, or me, anyway, I think. Oh, I've just lost my mic. Um, I don't know how it happened, and to be honest, winter as well has sort of suddenly leapt upon us and caught us by surprise. Um, There's even snow on the ground in Leicester where we were yesterday. Um, So in some ways I'm not ready for Christmas, but it is the first Sunday in Advent. Advent's the period when uh, traditionally Christians um, remember the first coming of Jesus um, and uh, look forward to the second coming of Jesus that has not yet happened. So in this Advent season... Um, we're going to be um, following a little short series which I've called Why Christmas? And we'll be looking at some passages in the early um, chapters of Matthew. Uh, In many ways, I think, this year, Christmas looks as though it's going to be a difficult one for many people. Half of all small and medium-sized companies are expecting it to be a difficult time. One-tenth of them say it will be make, make or break for their business. Councils are cutting back on lights. Ireland is even worse. And Brian Cowan, the tea shock in Ireland, has been called the Grinch who stole this Christmas and the next one and the one after that and the one after that. But um, it's actually not very easy here. But I will still be celebrating. Not perhaps quite so lavishly, but celebrating nonetheless. Because the event that Christmas celebrates, the birth of Jesus, whilst it's not quite the high point in the whole Bible story, I think that has to go to the the death and resurrection of Jesus at the end of the Gospels. It It is the pivot point, it seems to me, between Old Testament and New Testament between uh, um, expectation and fulfilment, anticipation and consummation. When Jesus arrives on the scene at the beginning of the Gospels, everything from that moment is different forever. So I'm going to be celebrating. And I'm going to be celebrating not least because of the message that this genealogy is, uh, is putting across, I think. This genealogy, confusing and boring, though it may have seemed as, we, uh, as poor Pat struggled through it, says something very, very important. God keeps his promises. Uh, Frankly, I wouldn't blame you for thinking that Matthew's made a sort of big public relations uh, error in his effort to uh, write a bestseller. Um, uh, They say you you should capture people's attention within the first few pages in a novel if they're going to bother to read it. And uh, um, Matthew goes and shoves this interminable genealogy at the beginning. And then in their wisdom, the people who finally put the Bible together, put that at the beginning of the New Testament. So anyone who decides they'll start reading the New Testament has first of all to get through this genealogy. Why? Well, Matthew wants to explain to us why. 
in the way that he has structured that genealogy. Matthew wants to say that, in fact, in a sense, this genealogy sums up the whole story of the Old Testament. There's a bit that he doesn't mention that we need to mention to get it in the context. The Bible, the Old Testament says, God created the world good, with nothing bad in it at all. And he created human beings in that world to take care of it. But we sinned. We disobeyed God. And from that moment on, the world was was cursed. The world was troubled. It was a place of violence and strife and war and ultimately death. That's the world we know and live in. But it's not the way it was supposed to be. And God set about to reverse that. And he decided to do it initially through one family. In fact, first of all, through one man, Abraham. The first man in, um, uh, in Matthew's genealogy there in verse 2. Abraham was promised that his offspring would become as innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, that he would gather people from every tribe and nation in the whole world into one great global family of faith, that, that he would be their God that they would enjoy his love forever and that they would finally inherit the whole world. Indeed, as the story unfolded, it was to be a whole new heaven and a new earth. And finally, through, though it started with one man who received the promise, God would reverse all the troubles of his whole universe forever. That, that was the promise that was given first to Abraham. And then through the rest of the Old Testament, that we, 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 we follow that promise. Because it was to Abraham's descendants that the promise was given. And at first, as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, um, uh, things are slowly getting better. Isaac is born, then Jacob, then uh, Judah and uh, um, Perez and Hezron and so on and slowly, 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 slowly things are moving forward until under King David it looks like they're within sight of the promises becoming a reality of all the good things that God has promised finally bursting into, in, in, into full flower and of the blessing that was promised to all nations going out. It looks like they're on the verge of it happening and then catastrophe happens. David sleeps with another man's wife, Bathsheba. He murders Uriah, her husband. And from that moment on, it is actually downhill all the way. David wasn't good enough to see the fulfilment of the promise, but now king after king after king seems to uh, um, take Israel closer and closer and closer to catastrophe. There are good kings, but the tendency is downwards. Until finally, God 
sends Israel into exile. Not anymore in the promised land. Now it looks in fact like they're going to be completely annihilated and removed from the world. What's become of the promises to Abraham? Well, they're not quite lost. No, some people return from the exile and this now royal line since David became a king struggles on in obscurity through Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abihu, Deliakim, Azor, Zadok and so on. The promises were almost fulfilled in David. They were almost lost at the exile. But then it is with the most enormous sigh of relief that you read, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Because Matthew's going to tell us that finally, in Jesus, the promises are fulfilled. And the rest of the New Testament and the rest of history is about the unfolding and realisation of those promises that were first made all those thousands of years ago to Abraham through Jesus. That's why Christmas is so important. That's why when you read Luke's Gospel and you see the angels going out to those shepherds on a hillside, you hear them say, Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Notice, in the town of David, i.e. a descendant of that King David, but better than him. A Saviour, Christ the Lord. That's why when those shepherds are watching, there's an innumerable throng of angels praising God with thunderous acclamation because they've been watching for millennia and they know the significance of the birth of this baby. God has kept his promise that he made all those years ago to Abraham. That's why Matthew begins his whole gospel with that genealogy. But in In the detail, we see wonderful and rich things about the way that God keeps his promises that I want you to look at and to spend a bit of time on. God keeps his promises and this is how. He keeps his promises sometimes through obvious heroes and sometimes through unlikely heroes. Um, There are plenty of obvious heroes in this genealogy. Let me just pick out David. We've already said he was flawed, but I tell you, he was one of the most wonderful leaders ever in history. He He was a legend in his own lifetime. But Matthew purposefully seems to go out of his way to mention a few others here. 
he mentions, for instance, four mothers. Four women. Verse 3, there is Tamar, who is the mother of these twins, um, Perez and uh, and Zerah. Verse 5, there are two women, Rahab and Ruth. Verse 6, though she's unnamed and just called Uriah's wife, this um, this is Bathsheba. You know, the very fact that women are included in this genealogy is frankly revolutionary. Genealogies were lines of men. But Matthew wants to highlight the dignity under God of both sexes and the vital, essential role that men and women have in God's great plan for history. But more than, that, more than their, their gender, these, these women are actually either mostly or probably all of them Gentiles, not people born into the family of God, not actually descendants of Abraham. But in, included in to God's great plan. And, and more than that, when you, when you look at their stories as well, you see that they were, one way or another, associated with some pretty gross sins, not always entirely their own fault. For instance, Tamar there, in verse 3, she was the widow of Judah's sons. Two of them had died, she'd married two of them successively. And she was determined that she needed to have a, um, a son within the family that she had married into. And uh, Judah would refuse to give her the third son as a, as a, as a husband, which she had every right to uh, expect. So she dresses up as a prostitute, she seduces Judah, her father-in-law, and gets a child that way. Pretty sordid. Or um, Rahab. She was a prostitute by profession until she came to faith in the living God. Or Bathsheba, we've already mentioned. Though she may have been relatively powerless in the situation, she was involved in adultery with David. So, so, so Matthew has picked out these people. He seems to stop and, and include them in on purpose when they are in all sorts of ways people, outsiders, people you would not expect to be paraded before you as part of God's great plan. These, these, these women, these Gentiles, these, these people involved in sin. God includes all kinds of people in his plan. God includes you and I. And perhaps you feel like an outsider here. Perhaps it feels uncomfortable for you to be sitting amongst these people. That is no barrier to you joining the people of God. Perhaps you were just born into the wrong sort of background. You think, well, how could I change? That is no barrier. Perhaps you are burdened by some sin. And you think, how, how could I be forgiven? How could I sit with all these wonderful holy people who seem to be around here? That is no barrier. God 
works through obvious heroes, great ones, and unlikely heroes, like us. God works through good men and villains as well. And very obvious in this uh, um, genealogy, for instance, there are some absolutely wonderful saints mentioned here. Um, Josiah, for, for instance, um, gets a, a mention in verse le- uh, ten, verses 10 and 11. Josiah was a wonderful and godly leader. He found the book of the law, which had been forgotten for generations in the history of Israel, and he set about reforming the whole nation and did not a bad job, to be honest, um, uh, within his life. But there are others who are far from saintly in this story. For instance, Josiah's father, Ammon, there, was an awful man who ultimately... um, in God's justice, was killed in a palace coup. Everyone thought good riddance to him. Or a few generations earlier, Ahaz is mentioned. Ahaz was an apostate. Ahaz closed the temple sanctuary. He practised child sacrifice, uh, almost certainly. And uh, when he finally died, they decided they weren't going to bury him in the, in the, in the, um, uh, the tombs of the kings. It just would be too awful to give him such honour. So, something very, very important we need to understand about this story of God's faithfulness. God sometimes works through saintly, godly people. And some, God sometimes works despite the awfulness of people's sins but he still works. This story of God's faithfulness, you see, is in some generations despite the horror of what God's people were doing. And let let me be really clear about how that works as well. He is faithful to his promises and he makes sure that they do not get stopped. But he is also faithful to his principles And none of those sinners, none of those monsters that there are in this genealogy escaped his justice. There is no promise that just because these people are in the genealogy of Jesus that we will meet them in heaven. Not at all. It's a sobering thing for us here. We might, we will be used for God's great purpose that he set out for the whole of his universe. But it is still a massively important question. Will I be an instrument of God to whom God says, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will I be an instrument of God to whom God says, away from me, I never knew you. And amazingly, in this, in this genealogy, it also makes it plain that, that there's a way back. One of the worst, worst, proverbially worst 
people in the history of Israel was, um, in verse 10, this man Manasseh. He did every bit as many awful things as anyone, frankly, amongst the kings. And in his lifetime, he suffered horribly for that. He got taken into captivity by, I think it was the Assyrians, and dragged, hooked by the nose, it says. Um, And he repented. It's extraordinary. He repented. He returned to Israel as king and he attempted reform in his old age. All life is here in this genealogy. Very, very important. Because any one of us That could be our story too. I pray that you do not go too far down the path of Manasseh. But however far you have gone, there is a way back. He works through good men and he works through villains. And God keeps his promises in obvious ways and immediate ways and hidden and delayed ways too. Let me, let me give you one um, keeping of the promise that didn't fit, seem terribly immediate at the time but from our perspective uh, looks positively short term compared with some of them. Um, Abraham, in his old age, was promised a son, Isaac. And he had terrible difficulty believing that he would have a son because um, they were past childbearing age. Um, His wife, Sarah, even laughed at the thought. But they did bear a son. God was faithful to what he had promised and he demonstrated it in their son, Isaac. But then, frankly, throughout uh, much of the rest of the, this genealogy, you, you, people are born, live and die and really the main promise certainly hasn't come true yet and you wonder whether they had any evidence of it in their life at all. As generation comes and generation goes and they wonder in every generation what has happened to the promise of Abraham. The, 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 the people as well are sometimes completely insignificant, otherwise unknown to history. The majority of the names um, after the exile to Babylon from verses 12 to, uh, to 16, the majority of those names are people who are entirely unknown to history. God's God's promises seem to go sort of subterranean in individual lives and to be honest, in the larger story of Israel during that long period. But it wasn't forgotten. That's what Matthew says. It was not forgotten. God was working out his purposes and God was not going to be stopped. 
That's so, so important. It's a central thing that we have to grasp, a central element of Christian faith. There is plenty of evidence, overwhelming evidence, that God keeps his promises, that he is faithful, that what he says he will do, he does. But there is also plenty of evidence in Scripture that we can't expect to see you know, regular, daily, short-term confirmations of that. Christians always must live by faith. Faith that if God worked like this, then he will fulfil the rest of his promises. Faith that though God's plan may be confusing, he will work it out. I often mention the story of Cambodia in that, uh, in that context. It's a, it's a harrowing story. You will know the outline of it, I'm sure, um, of Pol Pot coming in and, uh, and, and effectively destroying that country and annihilating the church when it had just started to flourish. And the people there must have thought, what has happened to the good purposes of God? Well, if you go to Cambodia today, you will find a growing, vibrant Christian church that has risen from the ashes and that is establishing itself as a vital force in the country of Cambodia. The martyrs under Pol Pot had to die in faith that though they could not see what God was doing, he would not be stopped in his purposes. I don't know what God's doing in your life. I don't know the things that you long for, that you wish would happen, that you will have to just accept. May not happen in your lifetime. You will just have to trust that God's larger purpose for you is to bless you and give you an eternity of joy in his presence. Because not every promise comes true immediately, even in our lifetime. As Hebrews says about another list of people of faith, all these died not having seen the promise fulfilled. God keeps his promises then, says Matthew. God is faithful. Indeed, he uses a, um, a device to try to um, help us to see how God keeps his promises within the messiness of history. Um, he says something very interesting in verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And that's certainly the way the genealogy is written, but any elementary student of the Old Testament will soon discover that he leaves out vast numbers of generations in order to make that neat 14, 14, 14 pattern. I mean, has he made a mistake? Is he trying to deceive us? I don't think so. 
he, he shows elsewhere, he has a deep um, knowledge of the Old Testament. Matthew doesn't make mistakes about his, his Old Testament knowledge and it's also clear that he's writing to people who also knew their Old Testaments. No, this is, this is not a mistake, this is not deceit, this is something else. This is Matthew saying, step back with me for a minute from the, from the messiness of what the Old Testament story is. And if you read it, you will see it is messy. Step back for a minute, he says. I want to show you, ultimately, there is a pretty simple pattern going on here. There is Abraham who was given promises. There is David who finally demonstrated that no human being was going to be able to fulfil those promises. There is the exile in, in which um, uh, the promises were nearly lost, but we saw that God was not going to forget his promises and he brings back a remnant and there is Jesus. That is the story. 14, 14, 14. He says, that's the story. You and I may live in mass. We do. We may live with lots of confusions, lots of uncertainties, lots of things that might distract us. But ultimately, it is pretty simple, your life. If you are a person of faith here, it is pretty simple. You have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You have sought forgiveness, one for you, at the cross, for every one of your sins. You have entrusted yourself to that Jesus and you have begun to follow him by the help of the Spirit. And you have been promised that God will never leave you or forsake you. You have promised that, that his love will, you have been promised that his love will endure even beyond death. You have been promised that one day you will, you will be resurrected with Jesus. You will rise from the dead. You will be brought into a new heaven and a new earth where there is no longer any mourning or crying or death or sin in the presence of the Holy God and God has made that promise to you, he will bring it to fulfilment. Full stop. I know there's mess and confusion. There is in my life, there will be in yours. But step back a minute, says Matthew. That's the story of the world. That's the story of your life. Which is why I love Christmas. Because up until that point, it was just words. It was just God saying he was going to do this. But when the solid person, Jesus Christ, walked the earth, when he started teaching in a way that nobody had ever taught before, when he did miracles such as nobody had ever done before, when he finally died on the cross for my sins, when he rose from the dead and hundreds of people saw him and promised that he was the, he was the forerunner for all people, when he did that, I knew God's words meant something. Christmas is the beginning 
of the fulfilment of God's promises. I want to to say to you, do you believe that? I'm sure there will be people who don't yet believe that here. If you are one of those people, investigate it, think about it, look at it. There is ample evidence in the Bible that every promise that God made, he has fulfilled. And I want to say to you, you believe it. I want to say to you, clear out of your mind the mess and get firmly in your heart and your mind with clarity that abiding truth, every promise of God is yes in Christ Jesus, says the Apostle. And go out there and live like that this Christmas. You are free. You do not need to be intimidated by those things that worry you. You do not need to be downcast by those disappointments. They are temporary disappointments. They are suffering for a little while, says Peter in one of his letters. But you are heading for glory. You can live your whole life 100% for Jesus and not be remotely disappointed. In fact, the disappointment will come if you try to hedge your life around and protect yourself and not trust the promises of Jesus. There are heroes and villains. There are saints and sinners. There are all kinds of people in God's story. What will you be like?